0: Faith language permeates the letters of Paul, yet its exact meaning is not always clear. Many today, reflecting centuries of interpretation, consider belief in Jesus to be a passive act. In this important book, Nijay Gupta challenges common assumptions in the interpretation of Paul and calls for a re-examination of Paul's faith language. Gupta argues that Paul's faith language resonates with a Jewish understanding of covenant involving goodwill, trust, and and expectation. Paul's understanding of faith involves the transformation of one's perception of God and the world through Christ, relational dependence on Christ, as well as active loyalty to Christ. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Nijay Gupta about his new book, Paul and the Language of Faith. Dr. Gupta is Associate Professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary at George Fox University. He has written First and Second Thessalonians in the Zondervan Critical Introduction to the New Testament series and is co-editor of the State of New Testament Studies with Scott McKnight. Doctor Gupta lives in Portland, Oregon. Doctor Gupta, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure and thank you for reading my book. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies.
1: Sure, sure. So uh, actually, I come from uh, northern Ohio, born and raised, and I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell in the Boston area. And one of my passions has been biblical languages in college. I studied classical Greek and in seminary, I got the chance, I remember, to TA for Greek. I hadn't really thought about becoming an academic. I was just interested in doing pastoral ministry work and maybe parachurch ministry work. And um, once I started to TA for Greek, I just fell in love with um, learning Greek, teaching Greek, studying the Bible in depth. And that, that kind of started me on the path of being in the academy And uh, after that, I went to Durham uh, University in the UK to study with John Barclay and Stephen Barton, just had a wonderful experience. So I I see my calling as digging deep into scripture and biblical studies and then trying to write and teach in ways that can bridge academy and church. And this book is, is one of those examples of me trying to kind of think broadly about Paul's theology using faith and the Greek word pistis and, and its cognates as as a path into thinking about Paul's theology for the academy and for the church.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this book is definitely um, in that vein and, and under that conviction. So how did you come to write this book? What What inspired taking the deep dive into Paul's faith language?
1: Right. Well, you know, a couple, couple things um, led to my interest in researching this book. One is I was asked to write a dictionary article for the Lexham Bible Dictionary on faith in the Bible. Now, I would thought about before faith in Paul or in the New Testament. But when they asked me to do faith in the whole Bible, it got me down, going down this road of wondering, what does the Old Testament say about faith? Because we normally associate the Old Testament with law. And I actually noticed that faith comes up more often than I thought. And actually several of the important parts of the New Testament that talk about faith actually point back to the Old Testament. And that kind of caught me off guard. Things like Habakkuk 2.4, Genesis 15, uh, but then other places as well where it talks about faithfulness, unfaithfulness, things like that, where there's this kind of pointing back to Abraham to the prophets, to Isaiah 53, places where where the New Testament depends on faith language in the Old Testament. That's one part of it. Another part of it is I've been very interested in conversations in the academy about what's called divine and human agency in Paul. When it comes to this thing called salvation or justification or redemption, what role do humans play? What role does God play? And I, I recognized that lots of key terms were being studied, like works of the law, law, righteousness, justification, even grace. But I also noticed faith had not entered the equation much. Now, when I started this book, it was kind of in that 2010 to 2014 range. That was before Teresa Morgan published a book on faith, Matthew Bates. And, but, but in that time, I, I just wondered, why, is, why aren't people talking about pistis and faith? And with those kind of things combined, I really thought, okay, there needs to be a really thorough investigation of this. It hadn't happened in a long time.
0: Right, absolutely. So you begin this book by shedding light on how, um, when PISTIS does, when it is only translated as belief, we miss its polyvalent nature. How do you tackle the massive task of, of doing this, of examining the nuances and original understandings of this term?
1: Yeah. I remember one of my friends read, you know, he, I gave a lecture on this, uh, for his class. And he said to me, is this just a big word study? And in some ways it is, it is a kind of massive, uh, complicated word study. And and, and this is just kind of the way my brain works is I want to get all the details in front of me. So you asked how, you know, how I went about this. I just tried to look up every instance of pistis, not only in the new Testament, but also in the Septuagint. Uh, as much as I could read in Philo, Josephus, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, um, and then looking more broadly at the Greco-Rom- Greco-Roman world and, and what I call pagan literature, which just means non-Jewish, non-Christian, I tried to look at uh, many uh, of the hundreds and hundreds of uses of pistis in Plutarch and Dionysus of Halicarnassus and all these you know, Greek texts to try to get a sense of, of what was the everyday usage of this language. And what, was, what I was surprised with is just how elastic this word pistis is, the word that we translate as faith or belief in the New Testament. It's remarkably elastic, which means it can have all different shades of meaning based on what the author wants to say. So it can mean proof, like a proof in an argument. Uh, it can mean something entrusted to somebody it can mean faithfulness, it can mean belief. It has all these different nuances. And I just didn't see that represented in English translations. And I didn't see that talked a lot about in commentaries either. So I I, I just looked at all these uses and I tried to categorize them. And what I came up with is a system where I see pistis as being able to move across a spectrum of meaning. It doesn't have 10 different meanings. All the meanings seem to be related somehow but it does seem to move across a spectrum i call it a modulating word and it can mean on one end something like belief which has more of a cognitive quality i think of something like we walk by faith not by sight and it has this you know kind of what's going on you know in your brain how you see reality but then on the other side of the spectrum it can have something closer to obedience we might translate as faithfulness something that is kind of moving uh, with our whole self towards something. But then sometimes we see that it kind of has more of a generic, um, all-encompassing quality, and we might call that trust. So I talk about it moving, modulating across a spectrum of meaning based on how it's being used, and I really feel like translations should capture that by using somewhat different terminology based on how it's being used. We see that happen, for example, with the Greek verb sozo. Sozo can mean save, but we notice that in the Gospels it's sometimes translated as heal. Um, sometimes it's translated as save. So, just in the same way a word like sozo can have these shades of meaning based on usage, I want to see that happen with pistis as well to represent its polyvalent nature. Got you. Yeah, so since
0: it does have this spectrum of meaning, um, how has that been treated in the history of New Testament interpretation? like how what can we learn about how pistis has been interpreted?
1: Well, what's interesting is so much of our assumptions about pistis come from uh, what we think of as a, a dichotomy of pistis and works in Paul. So we think of pistis as something sometimes scholars think of it as passive or something that is not working and so we treat pistis as as somewhat passive because of like galatians 2 and other places where we see paul seemingly contrasting faith and works but when we look at the earliest use uh uh, after paul of the language of pistis not only in places like james and hebrews and revelation but also in like the apostolic fathers like first clement uh, we actually see a very active, a very socially dynamic use of pistis where it, it means faithfulness in most instances and seems to be paired often, for example, uh, in uh, uh, Epistle of Barnabas and other places, it's it's paired with hospitality, which is a, a very active social virtue. And uh, I think over the first couple centuries of Christianity, we see pistis viewed as a very active thing, I think we start to see that change with Augustine. I don't think Augustine was against an active use of piscis, but he moves in the direction of making it kind of more about Christian belief. Uh, We see that further in Aquinas. Um, And then uh, Luther is important, and I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Luther because I was kind of surprised by what I discovered. I sat down and read Luther's Galatians commentary, looking at his faith language in particular, attentive to that. And I thought I would see him talk a lot about the doctrine of justification by faith. And I actually didn't. What I saw was a Luther who was very interested in faith as a way of talking about union with Christ, something we associate with Calvin. Uh, but he saw f- any doctrine as uh, not superior to the essence of what I call the Christ relation, becoming one or bonding with Christ or being coming associated with Christ. And so I think actually some Lutherans have misunderstood Luther on this and have overemphasized a doctrine of justification by faith as kind of a static doctrine. In his Galatians commentary, I see more of a relation-oriented approach to faith and what I would call participation in Christ, uh, becoming one with Christ. I actually see that in Luther in ways that I hadn't heard about, talked about Luther before.
0: Yeah, that that is fascinating. And I think the readers will be a little bit shocked, but very much helped through that, uh, that understanding. So that, that was chapter two. Then we turn to chapter three, which begins kind of examining faith language in ancient non Jewish and Jewish literature. What conclusions did you find from your research in these bodies of literature?
1: Yeah. You know, I remember when I sent, when I sent that chapter out to some friends, they just felt like it was kind of overwhelming because it's just a lot of detailed information. So I put a section at the beginning of the book just to say, you know, if pastors especially would find that intimidating, they can kind of skip it because I just found so much information I wanted to convey, but it's a lot of detailed academic information. Uh, What I discovered in there was um, we... Today, we often use faith as a kind of way to talk about religion. So you think about talking about um, respecting many faiths or people of different faiths. And we think of faith as kind of a religious term. In the ancient world, it was definitely not a primary or exclusively religious term. Pistis was used commonly to talk about relationships of concord or relationships of mutual agreement. So you see that in marriages, you see that in business relationships, but you often see it in um, nations or groups aligning politically or in war with one another. So pistis actually appears a lot in the ancient material we have because so much of the ancient material we have is about war (laughs) and about politics. And so pistis was actually a very, very common word that was used in the ancient world to talk about relationships of agreement or concord. And uh, one thing that I discovered, which was a little bit surprising to me, but now has actually helped me better understand the New Testament, is that for most ancient people and their use of pistis, pistis is something you do. And we have trouble with that because of the way we look at the relationship between faith and works. But in very common usage of pistis, pistis is something you do because you're demonstrating fidelity or loyalty towards another person. Whether or not it's viewed as a work, that can be kind of a little bit debated, but even in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees, and he says, you've neglected to perform or do the weightier matters of the law, and he includes in that pistis. And this is pointed out to me in a commentary by R.T. France, where he says, you know, we shouldn't be so allergic to associating faith with action because even Jesus associates faith with action because he says pistis is something you're expected to do. Um, And so that was kind of surprising to me at first, but it made sense of looking at faith as this holistic way of communing and uh, being in relationship and obeying God through Jesus Christ.
0: Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that is fascinating. So turning to another body of literature, do you believe that pistis is used similarly in the Gospels as in Paul's writings?
1: Yeah. Jonathan, I want to return also to a discovery I made in the Jewish literature I didn't mention, but I think it's really important to the book and the way we look at Pistis. Um, I want to talk about the relationship between Pistis and covenant. We'll talk about this, I think later when we talk about Galatians, but this is an insight I got from looking at the Septuagint and Josephus. I I really want to pass on because it could be transformative for the way we look at the Bible in general and definitely the way we look at Paul. So, um, as I was looking at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that became prominent in the Second Temple period, the time of Jesus and Paul, I noticed that Pistis often uh, appeared in relationship to how Jews obey or enter, uh, engage with the covenant. And in and at least one instance, which is Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, there's an example where um, uh, some Israelites have rebuilt uh, the walls of the temple when they returned uh, from exile. And it says that, uh, Nehemiah says that they kind of made a proclamation. Um, and it says that they, uh, in Hebrew, it says they karat, which means cut, and emuna, which means faithfulness or firmness. Now, normally in Hebrew, you karat a berit, you cut a covenant, which means you make a covenant. But the Hebrew is a little bit different there. It's using emunah as some kind of approximation or circumlocution for covenant. And the Septuagint does something similar. It says they diatithemi they established a pistis. So for the first time, it seems, in, in the Septuagint there, pistis is used as a replacement for the word covenant following the Hebrew. Now, when we shift over to Josephus, who is writing approximately at the same time, uh, in his Antiquities, which recounts the history of Israel and the, and the life and times of Israel, uh, it's often summarizing or paraphrasing what happens in the Old Testament stories. And uh, Josephus will sometimes use a former word for covenant whenever the story of Israel engages with a covenant. But about a third or maybe half the time, Josephus will use pistis in the plural, pistase to represent covenant. Now, Josephine scholars recognize this, and they have talked about why Josephus does this. And the conclusion that most of them reach is that he does this to communicate what a covenant is to a non-Jewish audience. And Josephus seems to have wanted to use pistis as a way to talk about mutual pledges of concord or agreement or faithfulness to show what a covenant was to non-Jews. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, once we get to, to the Gospels and Paul, scholars have wondered over the years, why doesn't Paul use covenant, language of covenant is so important to the Bible? Well, I think one of the reasons that Paul doesn't use the word covenant on a regular basis is he was following the trend that Jews were doing, the habit of using pistis as a way of communicating fidelity that looks like what a covenant is, mutual pledges of fidelity. And so, you know, to transition to your question about the Gospels, I, I do see that Pistis is being used as a way of talking about covenant faithfulness, uh, Israel's uh, failure in that. Um, uh, Jesus' faithfulness is representing a new way for Israel to be redeemed and transformed. And I think Paul's doing that as well.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think that is that is incredibly helpful and I was very much uh excited to to read that section. It was um, very enlightening. so you turn then from these um, these conclusions to then digging into to paul and and you go to first Thessalonians and Philippians first in order to get a, a well-rounded grasp on what Paul means when he uses pistis. So would you mind sharing some of your conclusions from from those two works?
1: Yeah. Um, so the way I treated Paul's letters is I kind of grouped them a bit. Um, I put Philippians and and 1 Thessalonians together because not only are they both from, a, you know, the same general, sent to the same general region, but they're also letters where you have Christians who are being persecuted. And Paul has an interest in calling these churches to perseverance, faithfulness, and I think and, – and part of what I want to argue in those – in that chapter is we shouldn't be allergic to or concerned with translating Pisces' as faithfulness because in those letters in particular – and I use these kind of as case studies. In those letters in particular, Paul is seeing kind of disheartened, crestfallen believers who are struggling with their walk. So I think of kind of someone kind of jogging on a treadmill and – when you start to get tired, you slow down and maybe you decrease the speed on the treadmill. And Paul's kind of seeing this happen in both those contexts. And he's wanting to spur them on or encourage them towards kind of fighting the good fight of faith. Even it's interesting in both letters, he uses military language to talk about perseverance and and fighting the good fight, so to speak. And the pistis language that's used in both those letters uh, seem to move in the direction of encouraging them to strengthen and maintain their walk. Paul doesn't view this as works righteousness. He's very clear that all things come from the grace of God and the empowerment of God. But I want to use those case studies to show that in the situation of encouraging perseverance, uh, it's very natural to use pistis as a call to faithfulness and perseverance. There's nothing theologically wrong with that, and it helps show the importance of calling Christians then and now to maintaining their walk, walking in the truth of the gospel, um, uh, standing firm in your faith. And, and I want to really sh- highlight those in those letters because um, translations traditionally seem to be concerned with translating pistis as faithfulness as if it'll lead to works righteousness. But I I think we should not be so concerned about that because the contexts are really encouraging perseverance and that's very Christian thing to do.
0: Right. Yeah. And and that encouragement, I think is crucial to to grasp when looking in those letters in particular. So then you attack Paul's faith language from a unique perspective. You go to Paul's discussion of wisdom in first Corinthians. Um, what about the the cross's wisdom and the humble foolishness of faith? Do readers need to understand?
1: Yeah, so so I talked about my chapters as kind of trying to highlight different things. So in my kind of main, early main chapters, I focused on Philippians and First Thessalonians. I wanted to kind of bring to the surface Paul when Paul will, might use pistis to mean something like faithfulness, uh, perseverance. Uh, with 1 Corinthians, I wanted to bring to the surface some occasions, especially in the early part of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is not working, he's not engaging with a church suffering from persecution. Uh, He's dealing with a church that doesn't, couldn't wrap their heads around the cross and the theology of the cross. And, um, I think Paul's doing something a little bit different with his faith language in First Corinthians, early part of First Corinthians. And so I focus really on more of that cognitive or epistemological aspects that faith can have. You think of, you know, I was talking with a friend recently that pistis is kind of a Swiss army word, a Swiss army knife word. And you can kind of pull these different Uh, tools out of it for different reasons. And I think in 1 Corinthians, the early part of 1 Corinthians, Paul's using pistis um, to talk more about a new way of looking at all of reality. And uh, so I I refer to that as kind of foolish faith or strange wisdom because Paul is trying to convince them to see the world in, in a completely different way. And he can use pistis to do that. Uh, So for example, um, uh, he talks about the message of the cross as foolishness and his pistis language is kind of built within that um, to live by faith according to what Paul's communicating to the Corinthians is to live according to a completely different way than the world. And, um, you know, the example I like to give with that is from the movie Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, one of my favorite uh, movies from my childhood, where, you know, Indiana has these tests he has to go through at the end to get the Holy Grail. And the third test is kind of crossing this chasm, which seems impossible to jump or walk across. But he has this guidebook from his father that kind of gives him clues. And so he has to take this you know, quote, unquote, leap of faith, where he kind of steps out onto nothing, not realizing there's a kind of hidden bridge there. And I think of Paul's theology of faith like that, where there's this foolishness in stepping where it seems like there's nothing. And Paul is trying to convince the Corinthians to do this with his theology of the cross to say there's there's wisdom, there's power, there's truth here where the world sees foolishness, falseness, uh, and and folly. And that, I, I really wanted to bring that out because people like Teresa Morgan, uh, she's done great work on Pistis as a social virtue in her book, Roman Faith and Christian Faith. But she didn't really talk about the connection between Pistis and wisdom in First Corinthians. And I really thought that would be a unique piece to pull out. And that actually continues on into Second Corinthians. Well, they didn't quite grasp his message in First Corinthians, so he had to go even further lengths to talk about f- the foolishness of faith in 2 Corinthians as the true wisdom of God.
0: Right. Yeah, so so let's dive into 2 Corinthians then. You you specifically look at chapter 4 verse 1 into 5 10. So, how does Paul then use pistis in the context of his own understanding of his ministry?
1: Yeah, thanks Jonathan. The the emphasis of that chapter, I really want to figure out what is Paul talking about when he says we walk by faith, not by sight, pistis, not ados. Um, One thing that captured my attention was the fact that sight, ados, uh, it means form or something that is seen. And sometimes that is associated with idols and idolatry in Jewish literature. And that kind of piqued my curiosity and attention. And so then I noticed that in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is very interested in idolatry, a theology of idolatry. He talks about um, what fellowship is there between uh, idols and the true temple in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He does some other things with kind of idol-like imagery. And so that got me down the road of thinking about Paul's theology in, in view of Jewish criticism of idols. And one of the main criticisms that Jews have of idols is that people focus too much on what can be seen instead of on the invisible reality and nature of God. And I thought that was really interesting because in the Corinthian epistles, Paul plays a lot on sight and light and darkness in both letters. And so I think that's very intentional for Paul. He wanted to emphasize – because you have these early Christians that don't have physical sacrifices like – like most other religions had. They don't have traditional temples. Uh, They don't have cult statues. And in the ancient world, to worship was to worship with a statue. And Jews didn't have that, but Christians didn't even have a temple of their own after after 70 AD. Uh, And so I I really thought through why does Paul juxtapose pistis and ados, you know, faith and sight. And, And it got me thinking a lot about how Paul is trying to show how Christians have to live by a, a different way of looking at all of reality, in the same way that Jews had to defend their faith and think about religion that didn't have cult statues, that didn't have images and idols, and 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 Christians didn't have the physical presence of Jesus either in a in a visible way, and 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 so Paul doesn't back down from saying actually. Not being able to see Jesus right now is a part of our faith, not being able to use a statue as a part of our faith because we see with a different way of seeing than the rest of the world. And that's not only – not only is it okay, but it's actually the way it should be because we walk by um, the wisdom of the gospel and we don't walk by just seeing things. Um, and there's there's kind of a trust and a risk that I wanted to bring out of Paul's faith language in that. And so that, that was kind of one of the main pieces of that chapter, that walking by faith is not just kind of guessing, but it is being so attentive to the Spirit, so attentive to the gospel, so tuned into Christ, that you're kind of walking blind, but it's okay because you're guided by this relationship. You're guided by this truth uh, that that supersedes mere merely walking by ADOS, walking by sight.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a very helpful chapter as well, um, breaking those things down. So let's let's change gears just a little bit. Um, you know, no book on Pauline literature would be complete without referencing New Perspective on Paul. And I was curious about how, and your book mentions this, how the new perspective influences your research and, and your conclusions And then maybe if you could define what you call covenantal Pistism.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody uh, comments on how inelegant covenantal Pistism is, but we'll we'll get to that. Maybe we'll find a better, find a better word for it. But, um, you know, I, I studied, I mentioned, I studied at the University of Durham, which um, at that time, uh, 2006 to 2009, uh, Jimmy Dunn, James D.G. Dunn uh, was retired, but he was in Durham and he, he was actually one of the reasons I wanted to go to Durham was just to spend time with him. And I had the privilege of, of um, occasionally having coffee with him and visiting with him and, and his wife, uh, Mita at his house. And I've kept in touch with him over the years, and he's been a massive influence on me. And I was really privileged uh, that he said yes to writing a forward for this book, a really nice forward. So in many ways, I see this book as kind of an homage to Jimmy's work. And I I just learned so much from him in seminary and during my PhD about the new perspective and and really finding uh, resonance with some of his work on that. Uh, When I was at Durham also, N.T. Wright was at that time the Bishop of Durham. And I didn't interact with him personally much, but just um, going to hear him lecture at the cathedral um, and spending a little bit of time with him as a TA for one of his courses, uh, again, learned so much from him. I had the privilege four or five years ago, three or four years ago, to uh, chair a session with uh, Ed Sanders, his last public appearance. He spoke in a seminar that I co-chair on Pauline Theology for the Institute for Biblical Research. So I've actually have had uh, interaction personally, which has been a privilege with uh, three of the great, uh, architects of the so-called new perspective on Paul. There's so much I appreciate about the new perspective on Paul, uh, the kind of unifying new Testament and old Testament, bringing these two things together as one whole story of scripture has been a beautiful thing. Appreciating Paul's Jewish heritage has been a beautiful thing. Um, so, uh, I remember giving a, a, a lecture on, uh, this book, uh, last year and, um, one of my friends just kind of said, so this is a pro new perspective book. And I hadn't thought of it that way, but I I suppose to me, it it makes sense to portray it that way. Part of the reason why I'm okay with that uh, analysis is because I'm a little bit concerned with two trends in scholarship. One trend uh, is to see Pistis, Paul's use of Pistis and pistuo, as something that uh, is meant to up the opposite of works. So I see this kind of revived in the work of Douglas Moo and his more recent commentary work and some other things. And in Thomas Schreiner, they've both kind of gone back to this Lutheran style. I don't think that uh, that's actually Luther, but I think it is true of some Lutherans where they see Paul's use of pistis as kind of opposing works righteousness. Uh, That troubles me because of some of the reasons I've already talked about. And I don't think that's what Paul's doing with his faith language. The other side of it is the so-called apocalyptic Paul movement, which emphasizes Pistis as the faithfulness of Christ. They want to take Pistis out of the human realm altogether. And so the Pistis-Christu debate, many of them side with the subjective view, which says it's all the faithfulness of Christ. Um, I think that can be overplayed. It can come across as pure divine agency which means humans do nothing and it's interesting i remember reading john chrysostom his uh, homilies on romans and when it comes to romans 3 it talks about justification by faith and actually chrysostom says in one of his uh, homilies and he says you're going to ask what do humans do uh, in in justification and then he says well the answer is we do faith uh, or we contribute faith or something like that. I thought it was really interesting because it pushes back against this idea that truly respectful Christological agency must put everything – if there's an equation, then it's 100% Christ and 0% us. Now, once you make it into an equation, uh, it's going to get really messy because that means if we're attributing 100% to God, then there's zero for us and then faith becomes again this passive thing. And I just didn't see that happen. So uh, going back to – do you want to follow up with a question or comment there before I jump into Covenantal Pistism? No, I think that that's good.
0: Let's, let's jump in. Okay.
1: So, okay, Covenantal Pistism. So I would say the heart of the book, Jonathan, is not just kind of the introductory chapters. Those are important. But if someone read only a couple of things, I'd want them to read kind of my introduction and – and uh, that kind of ancient uh, use of pistis, and then and then if they only read one other thing, I'd want them to read the Galatians chapter because I really feel like that's the, kind of the heart of the book. But um, I used to have this idea that Galatians was all about Paul and these uh, Jewish Christian teachers or missionaries that were, um, you know, falsely teaching the Galatian believers. I used to think that. Paul's message was justification by faith, and these Jewish Christian missionaries' message was works of the law. Now, I used to think that because that's what it looks like in Galatians 2.16, right? But after doing all that background research on pistis and how Jews use pistis, I came to a different view, and that's the one I present in that book, and the view is – how would these Jewish Christian missionaries have received Galatians 2.16 if they read the letter? I think they would have disputed the fact that Paul was putting pistis on his side of the equation and not on their side. I think those Jewish Christian missionaries would have claimed the word pistis for their way of understanding justification. I think what Paul was doing was the unique thing that Paul was doing was not claiming justification by faith. It was separating pistis from Torah. I think Jewish Christians would have viewed prior to Paul doing that as being justified by pistis through Torah and Christ. Pistis would have been kind of the track and Torah and Christ would have been kind of the train and the, I think the unique thing that Paul was doing was not talking about justification by faith. I mean, he did that, but by actually separating Torah from Pistis. I refer to that as kind of splitting the atom for the first time. It would have never occurred to a Jew to do that, even a Jewish Christian. They would have believed that if Pistis means something like covenant, yes, of course, you're in a covenant, but the covenant operates according to Torah. Even if Christ is Messiah, it operates according to Torah. What Paul was doing is saying, what happens if we separate Torah from Pistis and make Pistis its own thing? And for many Jews, that would just be completely unfathomable. Now, let's go to Ed Sanders. When Ed Sanders talked about the pattern of religion of Jews in the time of Paul, uh, he talked about it as covenantal nomism, meaning Jews entered the covenant by God's grace but had to maintain a certain standard to, ma- to stay within the covenant. He called that covenantal nomism. Now, Sanders thought that Jews in general, common Judaism followed covenant nomism but Paul did not. Paul had this kind of participation in Christ theology, kind of um, uh, union with Christ kind of thing. Now, Jimmy Dunn and Morna Hooker, they said, no, we think covenant nomism fits Paul as long as it's kind of spirit led, uh, you know, kind of attitude or aspect of it. I think Jimmy and, and Morna Hooker are right because you have both grace and expectation, covenantal expectation within the new covenant. But I think the use of the word nomism is where they get it wrong. Um, so they were reusing, um, Sanders phrase covenant nomism, but Paul wasn't really a nomist in the sense of nomism, meaning law. Uh, Brian Rosner has a really good book on this called Paul and the Law, and he has a good, some articles and this as well, where he says, you know, the way that Jews talk about being under the law, being kind of beholden to the law, uh, obliged towards the law, Paul doesn't use that language, so it's not really fair to call him a nomist. So I want to come up with something else. What was the kind of platform that drove the covenant for Paul? And that platform was a relationship with Christ, what I call the Christ Relation. Now, if nomism has been replaced, if Torahism has been replaced as the platform for how one is in covenant relationship with God, what do you call that? Covenantal, you could call it Christism, um, but I want to talk about this mediation of the covenant through the Christ relation. So the word I came up with is pistis or pistism, which reflects this idea of how are people in relationship with God traditionally Jews to say covenant through Torah? And Paul says, no, covenant through Christ. And actually that's very Lutheran. Lutheran said, um, some say there's no salvation outside of the church. I say there's no salvation outside of Christ. And, um, this Christ relation aspect, I really see resonates well with, with Luther, but I think this is what Galatians is all about. It's saying, okay, let's imagine that Torah isn't the platform for one's covenantal relationship with God. Let's say it's actually a person. And let's say that person is Jesus Christ. And, and let's not focus on Christ does this and I do that. Let's focus on the fact that he is the living link between God and mortals, and one has only to be in intimate relationship with him to make the covenant effective. And that's that's what I refer to as covenantal pistism. Right. Yeah. And in
0: continuing to use um, the Old Testament backgrounds to what Paul is is meaning when he uses pistis, you then um, go to Romans uh, in, in Romans 117. And um, I just wrote this down. I think this is a, this is a good paraphrase. You you paraphrase Roman one seven, Romans one seventeen as in this gospel, God's righteousness has been brought to full light, that expects complete and exclusive truth, just as it has been written in Scripture. The righteous will live by trust. Can you can you just walk us through how you read Paul's use of pistis in in Romans one sixteen through seventeen?
1: Right. Yeah. I, you know, I think Romans in many ways is a more um, tempered uh, and, uh, um, articulate form of the discoveries and, um, uh, convictions he had in Galatians. Um, how do we know that, um, by his reuse of Habakkuk two, four here, just as he did in Galatians, um, he wants to talk about the essence of the gospel. He wants to talk about what his gospel is all about to a group of people that didn't know him personally in Rome And so when he wants to summarize what his gospel is all about, because they probably heard rumors about this Paul person. Some people may have heard bad things about him and they're not quite sure what his ministry is all about out there in the world with these Gentiles. He wants to summarize that as not being ashamed of the gospels, the power of God. um, But he specifically focuses on Pistis in Romans 1, 16, 17. And he particularly, he, he uses Habakkuk 2, 4 to, support that. Um, I wanted to really understand why he uses Habakkuk 2.4 as kind of the headline of his gospel, uh, or maybe the support or foundation of his gospel, because they're seeing a lot of the things that he's doing as new, maybe even dangerous. Um, and in the ancient world, Jonathan, you have to remember that religion was at its best, when it relies on what is ancient and tried and true. And so, you know, the Jews kind of got a pass in the Roman world for observing their religion because they could claim that this religion is very, very old. It goes back many, many, many centuries. And Christians came along and they have this new thing with Jesus and the Spirit. Um, but in a place like Romans 1, Paul can say, what I'm doing is nothing more than... Um, pointing to and respecting Habakkuk two four, which says those who are justified or righteous, uh, or or walking with God, are uh, live by pistis, live by faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, I, I kind of go back to that covenantal pistism. So I'm glad you made the connection there. You know, looking back at Habakkuk two four, all these things were happening to Israel, and they were uncertain about the future, and and what was God up to and what does the future hold? There are these visions and, you know, there's all sorts of concerns about war and, uh, and, and, and there's something really simple about Habakkuk 2.4. Uh, what does God require of his people? Faith, trust. Uh, I think of Eugene Peterson's long obedience in the same direction, just kind of trusting God. Uh, and, and, and just knowing that he has everything under control and what's asked of, of his people is simple trust. And I think for Paul, everything boils down to that simple trust. It's, you know, you think about Romans 14 and 15, should we eat vegetables? Should we not eat vegetables? Which days are holy, which days are not holy. And Paul talks about conscience there. Paul talks about each person being decided, but even there, it's all a matter of trust. It's not a matter, you know. If you think about Roman religion, Roman pagan religion, um, the way Roman religion operated, the religion of the of the state, uh, it was all about doing the rituals correctly. Uh, the whole fate of society was about these Roman priests uh, doing the rituals correctly to receive the right outcome and support from the gods, and you could see probably that mentality trickle down into all areas of life for Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is doing something different where he's saying uh, doing religion correctly is not about choosing the right kinds of activities to be pleasing to God in terms of food or holidays. Uh, it's, it's a matter of trust, just like it was for Habakkuk, just like it was for Abraham, which is why in Romans 4, you have such a long discourse on Abraham. It's, it's all about trust. If you're if you're holding on to Christ, if you're if you're following Him closely, following Him uh, with with faith, hope, and love, um, you're going to walk the right path of righteousness, and that's what I think Romans is all about. I think we overcomplicate Romans with kind of really esoteric theology. I think for Paul, it boils down to Habakkuk two four: the just will live by faith.
0: Excellent, absolutely. Yeah, that is a very clear and a great understanding to the background of Paul's use in Romans, for sure. Well, Dr. Gupta, I really appreciate the time you have spent with us. Uh, I think this book is such a great interaction with, with lots of sources. I think it's very text-focused. It's about the Bible. It's um, It's good. It's succinct in its conclusions. And I think just a very helpful bridge between uh, the academy and the church. So I I heartily recommend it. Um, Before we close out our interview, would you like to share with our audience about any other projects you're working on next?
1: Sure. Thanks for asking. Um, I uh, have a commentary coming out on Philippians. Philippians. Uh, With Michael Bird, who's a prominent New Testament scholar and blogger. We're we're buddies. We've done a few different things together. And so he approached me uh, a couple years ago to co-write a commentary with him on Philippians for the new Cambridge Bible Commentary Series. That's coming out in the summer. So I'm really excited. I'm looking at the proofs now, and it's just fun to work with a friend. And Philippians is one of my favorite letters So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm also working on a commentary on Galatians, which is why I'm so passionate about Galatians at the moment. uh, For the Story of God series, and what I really like about that series is it's 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 getting to the heart of what are these letters about, and what do they say have to say about Christian formation today? Uh, And I just love that question. As I'm a seminar professor, I have you know kids who are growing up in the faith, and I want to see them use scripture um, and to help them be formed into the image of Christ. So I'm really excited about that. And I have a textbook coming out in about a couple of months called A Beginner's Guide to New Testament Studies. It's with Baker. It's intended for anyone who really wants to better understand some of the most controversial issues in New Testament studies, but handled in a very Uh, easy accessible way things like synoptic problem is the gospel of john historical uh, the different views on paul's theology the different approaches to revelation uh, what does the new testament say about women Uh, so i I picked topics i felt like would be really interesting and and um, really help people under navigate uh, cutting-edge conversations new testament studies for example the new testament and The roman empire and how the early christians navigated that so uh, be on the lookout for that it's called beginner's guide to new testament studies
0: wow excellent so that is quite a lot and i'm excited about uh looking at those when they come out so thank you so much appreciate it well to our audience thank you for listening to this episode of new books and biblical studies Uh, until next time i'm jonathan wright your host and take up and read